take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 5 this morning as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and uh, we're going to look at a very difficult passage, actually. Uh, I don't know how you have experienced the first uh, couple sermons back into Matthew, uh, but they've been very encouraging, uh, very practical, and uh, now Jesus is going to kind of lay the theological foundation for all that he is saying. And I want to start this morning by saying that Jesus has hard words for people to hear. The Sermon on the Mount, as beautiful as it is constructed, as simple as it is to hear, the sermon is filled with hard words. In fact, this sermon, as beautiful it is, as simple it is, is very, as Nate mentioned, didn't Nate do a great job last week? Thank you, Nate, for serving us last week about being salt and light. As Nate mentioned last week, this sermon is revolutionary. Jesus, though he will define himself in a few chapters, in chapter 11, as one who is gentle and lowly of heart, even though he is that, he demands much from his followers. He requires much. And as Nate mentioned last week, Jesus is, in his ministry is bringing a new revolution, something that is better than the old and something that will propel us into the better future. But Jesus' revolution is not through military force. His revolution is an ethic. It's a way of being in the world be a way of being in the world that will cause the powers of this age to crumble. And I want to repeat that in, in different words, because I think this is the essence of what we're trying to communicate to you through the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus desires a way of being a way of, of conducting your life, and that is going to be the, the thing, the, the way that the, armor, the powers of this world are disarmed. Being a follower of Jesus is not so much about performing some grand activity in the name of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus is not coming to a church gathering once a week, if you will. Being a, a follower of Jesus is, is not going to a conference. Being a follower of Jesus is an everyday lifestyle, a way of conducting your life in the world. And the revolutionary message in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, this single sermon that Jesus gives on a mountainside is hard because the command seems so daunting. <clears throat> okay, and, and I don't know if you have your Bible open and you can see the different headings. I'm not going to read through all these, but you just look at the headings. And, and the next one after this is murder. And Jesus is going to say, if you hate someone, you have murdered them. How many of you hated someone this week? You murderer. Right? I mean, like, that is hard to hear, is it not? But Jesus' message is not just daunting and revolutionary and hard to hear because his demands are so great. But there's another reason. And this must go back to the original audience. They had another potential problem with Jesus' message, one that you and I don't necessarily in our seats today going to immediately resonate with, but it is a difficult, daunting problem that we have to actually in our seats deal with. 
Jesus, after the opening, shex, opening sections of the sermon, of this sermon, in the Beatitudes and in the salt and light, now is going to, before he jumps into the body of the sermon, the main part of his sermon, he's going to give this theological statement, this theological introduction. In fact, all of his future teaching in this Sermon on the Mount hinges on these verses. And what was it that gave the original hearers such a hard time hearing Jesus' message besides the fact that his commands and his demands were so great? Let's read Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you will do what you promised to do and send your spirit when the word of God is open and and to penetrate into our hearts, into our souls, into our bodies, into our minds and cause us to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and what he is doing in and through the world to bring about your final purposes. So we ask that you would grant us faith and eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. The, the daunting issue for the original audience re, re, revolves around the relationship between what Jesus is about to teach them and with the Mosaic law. Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law of Moses, but to actually fulfill it. So we actually have to start with understanding, like, what is the law of Moses? Okay, and I have a few points I just want to put on the timeline, on the, on the back here, for you to see, just to kind of put a picture together of what the purposes of the law were. Number one, we need to understand that the purpose of the law was to promote flourishing within the community. So, if you're unfamiliar with what happened in the Old Testament, when, when God brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, if you remember that amazing story where God split the waters, Israel walked through, and then they took a two-week journey that ended up being 40 years, and they went into the promised land of Israel. Well, while they're in the wilderness, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of those. These ten uh, rules that God gives to Israel. But in essence, what God gave to Moses was 613 commands. When you read the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can put all the different commands together and you'll come up with about 613 very specific commands that God gave to Israel. And these 613 commands were, in a sense, to promote flourishing within the community. So, for instance, 
If you love your neighbor, do you think they'll be flourishing in your community? If you don't commit adultery, do you think they'll be flourishing in your community? Do you think if you don't lie to one another, there'll be, there'll be blessing in your community? The point is that God gave these laws to Israel to promote a flourishing society. The society that was built on, on God principles that would promote flourishing within a human nation. So we could just say, first of all, God gave this law to Israel so that the nation could actually flourish. They know how to deal with problems when they came up, and they know how to live their life. And so the internal use was to promote flourishing, but an external use was, as Nate mentioned last week, was to be a light slash blessing to the nations. So there is a, a what we would call a missional use, a missional purpose, that, that God gave Israel a mission, and this law was very integral to the mission. On the next slide from Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses wrote these words from God. He says, See, I have taught you statues and rules as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may do them in the land you're about to enter to take possession of them. Keep them and do them. And then we would be good just leaving it right there. God gave us a bunch of rules. Let's go in there and obey, right? Just do it. But listen to why. It says four. Here's the basis, the reason. This will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, of all the nations who, when they hear all of these commands, will say what? When you read all 613 commands of God, you say what? Oh my gosh, he's strict and tight. But actually, it's quite the opposite. When Israel go into the lands and keep these rules and these statutes, the nations would say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law is set before you today? Why did God want Israel to obey these laws? Not just promote human flourishing in the society, but be a blessing so the nations would come and experience and know Yahweh or God Himself. See, the way that Israel fulfilled their mission of being a light to the nations is just by obeying the law. And in doing so, the nations would come. Number three, not only is there an internal use and an external use, but there's kind of like a practical use. Practically, the law reveals to us the nature of sin. What the law reveals to us is that the power of sin is just too great. So that, did Israel flourish as a community overall? No. Why? Because the power of sin was too great. Did Israel fulfill their missions to the nations? No. Why? Because the power of sin was too great. Of course, there were pockets of time and different kings, different leaders who would lead Israel in the way and there'd be flourishing and prosperity, especially under kings like David and Solomon. But ultimately, the nation could not obey all the statutes. Or as Paul would say in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 on the next slide that says this, no one can be ever be made right by God by doing the law commands. Why? Because the law simply shows us how sinful we are. The point of the law is this, is that as you try to obey it, what do you realize more and more? 
The more you try to keep it, the more you what? Break it. Like, you just try to live out the golden rule. Like, you're going to a party this afternoon. You go into my house. Everyone's welcome to come to my house and jump in the pool and play nine square. Come on over, and I want you to practice the golden rule. I want you to treat me how you always want to be treated. Okay, just try it. You're going to find after 10 minutes I'm annoying. You're going to hate me, and you're going to push me in the pool. You're going to find out that as you try to obey the golden rule to treat other people the way you want to be treated, the more you think about it, the more you're going to see that you are unable to do it. The law reveals the power and the nature of sin. And so these are the uses of the law. There's like an internal use to promote flourishing. There's a missional external use to bring blessing to the nations. But ultimately, the law revealed that we can't obey the power of sin, Satan, and death are too strong over us. And as we enter into the time of Jesus, the law had another purpose. Number four, the law became the way to force God to act on behalf of the covenant promises for Israel. All right, I've mixed all those up. That's the third one, but it should be the fourth one. Okay, so either way, the fourth point is that the law became the way to force God to act on behalf of his covenant promises. You'll notice in this passage and as we go throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to refer uh, to a couple different groups of people. And in verse 20, he mentions the scribes and the Pharisees. If you're unfamiliar with the scribes and the Pharisees, they are the religious elite of the day. They're the ones who are responsible for teaching the law, obeying the law, informing everyone what the law means. <clears throat> and oftentimes you give the Pharisees a bad rap, right? You hear the word Pharisee and what do you think to yourself? Psst, those idiots, right? And, and in one sense, sure, maybe. Just make realize that you're just like them if you do that, okay? But what's interesting is you ever thought why the Pharisees were the way they were? Like, what made a Pharisee someone who are the only people that Jesus ever condemned in all of his ministry are the people who were the religious elite? But why were they that way? Sure, it was to gain a standing in society and to gain a standing with God. But as you look back at the history of the Pharisees, here's what's happening. The nation of Israel, for, if you remember this story, were taken in captivity in Babylon. And after 70 years, they go back <clears throat> To, to their homeland in Jerusalem, and it takes all of this turmoil and this effort to rebuild the temple and to build the city walls. And all throughout this time, Israel is being taken over by Greece and taken over by Rome, and they're waiting for the Messiah to come and deliver them. And Israel's like in this black period of their history. And all these different groups of Israelites, these Jewish people, are trying to figure out how to have God fulfill his promises to his people. God said to Israel, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you the light to the nations. And and the nation of Israel is wondering, why isn't God doing it? And a group of people decided the reason God isn't blessing us is because we're not obeying the law. And so the Pharisees were created to be a group of people who would then reinforce the law to the nation so that through adherence to the law, maybe God would come and act on their behalf. Does that make sense? 
They're not just a bunch of weird people who just obey laws for the fun of it. They actually are people who are trying to have God redeem them and to visit them. And it became their way of life ultimately so that God would come and fulfill their promises. And so they built their lives around the law. It was the basis for their life. Their life was tied up in these 613 commands. And here's what the... Here's how crazy they became and how crazy we might become. <clears throat> On the next slide, I have an illustration here of a, of a box in the center, I believe. And on that box, it says specific law. So you just put any of the 613 laws in that box. Okay? Um, Let's just, have, let's just have fun this morning. It's 4th of July. Let's have some fireworks, okay? The, the, the command we're putting in there this morning is don't be drunk. Okay? So then what did they do? In order to ensure they never were drunk, they drew a border around that and said, you know what? I'm never going to go to a place that serves alcohol. I'm never going to be around anyone who does drink alcohol. I'm not going to do... And can you see how each one of these layers kept building further and further away? So that if you broke through three fences, you were still what? Three fences away from breaking the law. This is what the Pharisees were so concerned about. And then there were like two uh, different schools of the Jewish pharisaical thought of like a... Republican and Democratic, actually. You know, a very conservative group that built like thousands of gates around the laws. This is the school of Hillel, and then there's the school of Shammai, who is a little bit more liberal and free. But in all of it, these people were concerned about bringing the redemption to their people. And so these people lived... Their life was governed. Their life was viewed. Everything was about these 613 commands. So Jesus, in light of all of this, is now going to lay out a whole bunch of new commands. And all of Israel would be thinking to themselves, I've spent my whole life memorizing the first five books of the Bible, which most of the Jewish boys did. They knew all 613 commands. And now Jesus is going to come and lay down new rules, a new ethic, a new way of being. And these people who are sitting on the mountainside are going to be asking themselves, Jesus, this is a different way of living than it was in the old way. There is something different about what you're teaching here than what we have learned our whole lives. And so what are you going to do about this law of Moses? Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish that law. I came to fulfill it. Now, this statement that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, brings some difficulty with it. So, for example, throughout Mark and Matthew, there's passages of Scripture where Jesus abolishes the food laws. Okay? I'm cooking bacon this afternoon to put it on my hamburger. Yay, Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Okay, right? Like, Jesus did away with the food laws. So in what sense can we say that Jesus didn't abolish but fulfilled them? Or why do New Testament writers, after Jesus' death and resurrection, insist that the sacrificial system that 
Thankfully, we don't have to go kill goats and sheep and rams anymore. Why don't we do that? Why is that no longer necessary? Why do Christians today not try to follow the details of the Old Testament law? Like, this seems weird that Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it, but we look at it and... Well, I'm just going to keep using myself this morning. In the Old Testament, you're not really, it says you're not supposed to mark your body with a tattoo, basically. And yet, I mean, I don't think I'm sinning. Maybe you think I am. But why can you do that today? Why can we eat pork today? Why don't we have to sacrifice today? One way that people have tried to uh, answer this question is they've tried to take the 613 commands and divide it into three different categories. The first category that they say is what we would call the, the civil law. The civil law. Like, there, and you look in the Old Testament when someone committed adultery. There were rules on how to do restitution. There were civil real rules and regulations and principles of how to deal with things that happened in the community and what to do with punishments. But there are also ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws were revolving around the, the sacrificial system. Okay, in, in Exodus chapter 20, the weirdest verse, you know, don't boil a baby goat in milk. Like, that's one of your 613 commands. Like, that's, the, I know most of you had a hard time obeying that this week, but you're not supposed to boil a baby goat in milk. And that's part of the, part of the, the, the sacrificial uh, way that God wanted the Israelites to observe their ceremonies. And then there would be this third category, not just the civil, the way that the, the society and the nation would function amongst themselves, and not just the sacrificial system, but then there would be what they call the moral law, or these are the Ten Commandments. What they say is Jesus came and abolished the ceremonial and the civil, but the moral, the Ten Commandments, he never abolished. Do you understand how they get away, how they deal with that issue? Like Jesus didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And so he fulfilled all the civil and all the ceremonial, but not the moral. <clears throat> um, even though that's a very good, I would say, I know lots of good Christians who think that, I, I don't think we should divide this law into three categories of civil, ceremonial, and sacrificial. Why? Because just look at this in, in verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you, until heaven and earth, not the smallest letter, which, you ever heard the phrase, I don't give one iota? You ever heard that? That's the Greek letter I, and we pronounce it Yoda. Yes, not the, not the Star Wars guy, but I don't, Jesus is saying it's not the, small, the smallest stroke, the smallest letter, Yoda, nor the smallest stroke of a pen. That's like in Hebrew, there would be a little small stroke that would make a difference between letters. And what Jesus is saying is that all the way down to the very details of this Old Testament law, and the fact that he mentions that not one jot or one tittle will not disappear seems to imply every aspect of this law. Number two, the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, never speak to these divisions. Like, Paul never talks about a civil law, ceremonial law, or moral law. The Old Testament never divides them up that way. In fact, it seems that the entire law is moral, that the civil, the ceremonial, and the Ten Commandments, as you put all these commandments together, are all moral, because what is moral? It determines what is right and wrong, and civil law is moral, and the ceremonial law is moral, because God determined you to do it that way. 
And so what we need to come to see is that what Jesus came to do is not just abolish the civil and ceremonial, but he abolished, and it's, no, 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 because he came not to abolish. He came to fulfill. He came to fulfill all of the law. Jesus, this passage teaches us a lot about what Jesus and his mission was. He came to bring the law to its intended goal. Jesus fulfilled the law in the sense that the entire law code pointed to him and finds its completion in him so that now Jesus can usher in God's new era of his kingdom. So what Jesus is actually trying to say in this passage is that all of those laws that you've been taught as children have been ultimately pointing you to who? Me, not me, but Jesus. All of those laws are now being ended and completed and finding their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. So this means, like, let's just get practical, you know, do you have to obey the Ten Commandments? I love this question. Nine of them. <laughs> you just get to pick and choose, we're going to talk about you in a minute. You know, like, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you that as... Exodus chapter 20, Ten Commandments, those are no longer binding upon the New Testament church. Why? Jesus brought all 613 commandments to completion in him so that now that era, the, the era of the law is now over and something brand new has begun. This is what Jesus wants his people to understand on the sermons on the mount, is that when you hear me speak, when Jesus is saying all these words, he wants them to understand that he is coming and doing something new. That the law served its purpose, and its purpose was from the time of Moses to Jesus. And now that Jesus is here, the true Adam, the true Israel, he is now providing a new ethic, a new law. And why someone said nine, you know, can you find Jesus telling people not to lie? Yes. Can you tell, find New Testament verses about not worshiping idols? Yes. The only one disagreeing, we can meet in the corner after if you really care, but the only one not specifically mentioned the New Testament is the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. Okay, in fact... Romans 14 and Colossians 2 actually says the Sabbath day is, in a sense, fulfilled in Jesus. So the New Testament interprets the old as pointing forward to Christ, the blessing that Jesus brings, the sacrificial system pointing to Jesus' final once-for-all sacrifice. Indeed, everything had to, be filled, had to be fulfilled that was written about Christ in the law, the prophets, and, and the Psalms. Therefore, the resurrected Lord could now explain to His disciples and all the people on that mountainside that everything in the Old Testament was ultimately finding culmination in Him. This means, as Romans chapter 4, chapter 10 says, Christ... And I think it was on the next slide. Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Like Paul understood that with the coming of Jesus, the law in its age was over. And a new era, a new age was dawning. Now, before Jesus even gets into this sermon, he has to actually tell them 
that what they're about to hear is going to be a little different than what they've heard in the past. And the reason it's going to be binding is because to listen to Jesus is to actually listen to God. Now, with all of that, let's make three final application points that Jesus makes with these. Look in verse 18. The first point is that this law continues through the end of time. Verse 18 says, I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. This verse is a little hard, right? Do you understand the, the, the difficulty here? Jesus is, is informing the people on the mountainside that, that, don't worry, the law that I am coming to fulfill that's not going to disappear. My fulfillment of this is not going to disappear. The law is going to continue to be here. How? Before I answer that, let's deal with a little bit of what Jesus is getting at. If you see uh, down here, I'm colorblind. I think they're red and yellow, okay, circles. <clears throat> okay, and you have two circles that overlap. And on the next slide, I have uh, uh, some points I want us to see, is that in this verse, Jesus says, until heaven and earth disappear. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about that first circle, this present creation, that the time from Adam and the creation of this world until the time that Jesus comes back is the time of this present creation. And Jesus is saying in this first creation... Heaven and earth, until that disappears, nothing is going to be taken away. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear until when? Everything is accomplished. What is Jesus seeking to accomplish? He's seeking to accomplish, you'll see in later Matthew, a regeneration, a new creation of this world, a brand new world that is going to form out of this old one so that God can come and dwell with us on a new, brand new creation. And what Jesus is saying is that in this time of this present creation, the law is never going to disappear. You know why? Because the law finds its fulfillment in me and I will be here until it is over. The law finds its fulfillment in Christ and he can say that it will never disappear because in the fulfillment of Jesus and the presence of Jesus, the law cannot go away. Number two, the second implication, so he's encouraging his readers there, by the way, to tell them that it's okay. In me, the law will continue until the new world comes. Number two, he wants to make this point. The kingdom commands are a total package. Look in verse 19. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Basically this, is we don't get to go shopping with Jesus' commands. As consumers, we go down the aisle and pick the fruity pebbles, and leave the Cheerios alone. We pick where we want to eat. We pick everything we want. And what Jesus is actually saying is that we don't get to go shopping with his commands. See, some of us like a lot of what Jesus has to say about forgiveness. A lot of us like what Jesus has to say about his sexual ethic. 
We, a lot of us like have Jesus like he has to say about all lots of things. But you know what? For honest with ourselves, there's lots of things we don't like what Jesus says. And he says, this new ethic that I'm laying down for you, this new kingdom ethic, is not one that you get to pick and choose. It is one where you must love and not hate. It is one where you must not commit adultery and be faithful to your spouse. It is one where if you make an oath, you better actually fulfill it. It is one where you better pray in your closet so not everyone thinks you're awesome. It is one where you better pray to the Lord's Prayer. It is one where you better fast, where you better lay up treasures in heaven, where you should not worry and stop judging others. This is the new ethic that Jesus is laying out, and we take it as a complete package. So which ethic of Jesus is hard for you to handle? Which one do you not like? Since Jesus is a fulfillment of all of the Old Testament commands, it is the height of folly to not listen to the totality of what he is demanding. The commands of the kingdom. <clears throat> and interestingly, in this verse, Jesus also says there's ranks in the kingdom of heaven. There's some who are going to be great, and there's going to be some who are least. And in those rankings, they're going to be, he says here, depending on the way that you actually teach others and you actually live out these commands. So, yeah, you know our culture loves certain parts of Jesus' teaching, and is directly attacking others. The question is, are we going to be faithful to believe in the ethic that Jesus commands, or will we give in to our culture? <clears throat> Finally, the third one, and probably the most troubling of all these applications of Jesus fulfilling the law, says this, that I've come to give you a new law, And I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's like that's like the despair drop of all despair. If your hope was that you could try to obey these commands and 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 get in, Jesus is like, no, your actual righteousness has to be better and greater than the greatest people you know. Okay, you think of the most spiritual, righteous person you know, and Jesus saying, you need to be better than that. How many of you are like, that's me, I'm ready to go? Or how many of you are actually like in despair right now? That if you heard Jesus teaching and he says, you better be better than all the religious elite, or you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is implying there is that even the religious elite are not entering the kingdom. See, what is required is a righteousness which surpasses the greatest of the day. These chapters do not depict a Jesus who just seemingly just so loves us and and his demands are inconsequential and unimportant. No, you need a righteousness that exceeds the religious elite. You need an obedience that goes beyond the expectations and the obedience of the Pharisees. And by now you should be gasping in dismay and conscious of your own spiritual bankruptcy and your inability to keep the commands. Because as we go through these commands each week, I think you're going to say to yourself, I can't do that. I hated someone this week. I hated 15 people this week. See, the Sermon on the Mount lays the foundations 
for what Jesus and Paul will call the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. There's what Paul, the most faultless of the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee himself who was probably the elite of the elite Pharisees of his day. When he came to understand justification by faith alone, he considered all of his spiritual assets as rubbish. His new desire was to gain Christ, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but from one God and by faith in Jesus himself. Look with me, if you will, at this next screen on Philippians chapter 3. Listen to the actual verses that I'm talking about. Paul says this, If someone thinks they have reasons but confidence in the flesh, I have more confidence than all of you. Why? Because I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I am the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In regard to law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, what does he say? Faultless. See, when Jesus said on the mountainside, your, your, your righteousness better be better than the scribes and the Pharisees, what he's saying is your righteousness better be better than Paul's. And Paul is saying, I was at the top. There's no hope. But what he says is what is more is I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I don't think we quite understand the position that Paul was in. The prestige that he had, the power that he had, the fame that he had, the influence that he had. And he says I gave all of that up when I believed what? says this, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you know how you get a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? You need a righteousness that only Jesus can give you. Otherwise, it's impossible to have that righteousness. And this is what Paul is saying, is that now, by simple faith, I have Jesus' righteousness. I have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And if you and I will believe that, that's what we mean by justification by faith, you're declared to be right with God and treated as such in His sight because by faith, you now have been given all of Jesus' righteousness. He has obeyed all 613 commands and all of the new commands He's laying out in this new ethic for us, and He has now given that to you. So the only way this verse has any hope, is when you believe that by simple faith in Jesus, you have a righteousness that is better than the scribes and the Pharisees. And the beauty of this is when you put your faith in Jesus, it keeps you from the pretending trap. Having to pretend that you're really good. Having to pretend that everyone around you knows that you're a good Christian. You don't have to pretend that you're righteous anymore. You can actually just be free 
to say, you know what, I'm seeking Jesus and I have all of his righteousness and this ethic that he's laying out, that is my goal and I'm pressing into that more and more and I desire that ethic more and more, knowing that when I fail, I'm forgiven. I mean, wouldn't it be just great to be free from the performance trap? To constantly be wondering, am I doing enough? Am I obeying enough? When you just put your faith in Jesus, you have a righteousness that beyond anything anyone could ever give you or that you could ever achieve. And as we move into the Sermon on the Mount, this ethic, Jesus has to lay out for his hearers. That the law is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And in me it finds its fulfillment. And now I am laying out in God's new era, God's kingdom, this new ethic that's going to be impossible for us to keep. But we have one who did it for us. So Jesus, thank you that in you, in, in your obedience, in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, you grant to us a righteousness. <clears throat> That we no longer have to pretend, we no longer have to perform, we don't have to achieve, we can in simple faith turn to you and say, Jesus, we need you. We believe that you have, in your death, defeated all the powers of darkness that keep us in this world You've defeated the power of sin in us so that we can now be free. You defeated the power of death so that we will never be separated from you. And in your resurrection, you have brought us life and righteousness because you have given us your life and your righteousness. So thank you for the doctrine of justification by faith. And may we, out of the doctrine of justification of faith, be able to joyfully seek to live out this new ethic that you're laying out for your church. So, encourage us in the fact that Jesus is our righteousness and we seek to honor him out of that. In Jesus' name we pray.